6: it gives me a lot of hope.
2: If you liked Locatora before, you're gonna love season nine.
6: Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast.
2: Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever
5: you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
7: And welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson, and I'm Holly Fry. This is our show from our recent live appearance in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Sort
5: of. <laughs> <laughs> we did record that show, but as we always warn, might be the case. Yes, some we- minor technical difficulties with that recording.
7: Yeah, we had some technical difficulties. We were there as part of an event called Great Conversations at Gettysburg. This was a whole full day of programming that was sponsored by the Gettysburg Foundation. We had a great time, but recording an outdoor event is always kind of a challenge. Uh, This time, we had a, a rain delay, followed by very breezy weather, and a just surprising number of motorcycle interruptions
5: Yeah, and as we were outdoors, all of those things conspired to make kind of a slushy sound quality. (laughs) Yeah, so we are going to have a studio version
7: of this show rather than the live recording. Also, we didn't call it this because folks just walking through Gettysburg wouldn't necessarily know what six impossible episodes means, but this is basically a six impossible episodes
5: uh, edition of the show. It's just focused on Gettysburg's ladies.
7: Yes, yes. For this live podcast, we wanted to focus on women and the Battle of Gettysburg. And there are just so many to choose from. Some of the people we are going to talk about were local to Gettysburg. Some were connected to the armies in some way, and some arrived after the battle it was actually over. We just picked a few favorites. If we don't have your favorite, it's not because that person was not any good. It's just that, you know, we we had a select few to choose for this time. Uh, also, this is not remotely all the women who were there And we're going to be focused mostly on the women's connections to Gettysburg and to the battle itself. So this is not going to be a full biography of all the women that we are going to talk about.
5: But we will jump in, and first we will talk about Marie Tepe, known as Fearless French Mary, who became quite a recognizable character during the Civil War. She was born Marie Breuse, probably in Brest, France, and she eventually immigrated to the United States. And once she got here, she married Bernard Tepe, who was a tailor in Philadelphia.
7: In June of 1861, Bernard joined the 27th Pennsylvania Infantry, and he really wanted Marie to stay behind and mind their tailor shop She wanted to go with him, though, so she became a vivandiere, which is a French term for uniformed women who traveled with the armies to kind of bolster the troops' morale. A lot of times, they acted as merchants and sold things like food and tobacco. Americans learned about vivandiere during the Crimean War, and during the Civil War, there were women in this role on both sides
5: of the fighting. Marie bought things like whiskey, food, tobacco, and various necessities to then sell to the soldiers. She carried her whiskey in a small keg, and she filled that keg with water when she couldn't get whiskey and sold water instead. And she fought when she had to, and she also helped care for the wounded. She was paid a soldier's salary plus an extra 25 cents a day if she was doing hospital work. At some point, Marie left the 27th Pennsylvania Inventory and Bernard
7: Tepe. The story, as reported by other people, was that several soldiers, one of them being her husband, broke into her tent and stole $1,600 from her. It is always tricky to try to convert uh, currency from that long ago to today's dollars, but that was a huge amount of money.
5: It'd be a huge amount of money today if someone stole that from me. So at that time, that was a fortune. Well, and even if,
7: like, her husband had just broken in and stolen a 20, like, that's still not cool. Yeah, theft is
5: theft. (laughs) But it really was quite a large sum. Uh, But she did not stay gone from the picture for long. Irish immigrant Charles H.T. Collis had previously served in the 18th Pennsylvania Infantry Regiment. And after his enlistment was over, he decided to start his own volunteer unit. And he wanted to style this unit after the French light infantry troops known as the Zouave, patterning the uniforms after their colorful pants, jackets, and turbans. At first, he had a small group known as the Zouave d'Afrique, or Collis' Zouave. They eventually became the 114th Pennsylvania Volunteer Infantry.
7: As had been the case with the Vivandiere, Americans' first experience to the Zouave was during the Crimean War, and then there were Zouave-style units on both sides of the Civil War. Just to be clear, although the earliest French Zouave troops were from northern Africa, eventually these units uh, associated with the French army were made up of Europeans, and the Zouave units in the Civil War, even though they might have some nod to the idea of Africa, they were made up of white troops.
5: Callas wanted his unit to have a vivandiere. Either he recruited Marie or she simply heard about what he was doing and volunteered to join. She once again sold provisions, cooked, and cared for the wounded. She also delivered water and supplies to the front lines. And doing that, she actually took a bullet in the ankle at Fredericksburg. She was recovered
7: enough to carry water to the troops at Chancellorsville. And there, she was under so much heavy fire that people described her skirts as being riddled with bullet holes. She was awarded the Kearney Cross for valor on May 16th of 1863, but she refused to wear it. She said she did not want a present.
5: By the Battle of Gettysburg, Marie was a recognizable figure for much of the Union Army in the area. She had also started carrying a red, white, and blue keg after her first keg was shattered by a bullet. She was there during the battle, and she came through all of that unharmed, although it does not appear that she left when the soldiers left. There's actually a picture of her standing on Cemetery Hill in Gettysburg, taken sometime afterward. And it's possible that she stayed behind to help care for the wounded, and then she joined back up with her unit later.
7: After the war, she married Corporal Richard Leonard, and she was photographed with her keg at a reunion in 1893. Eventually, she and Richard divorced, and she died of an apparent suicide in 1901.
5: Before we move on, we should really note that although Marie was in combat at various times, and she was paid a soldier's salary, she was not actually there as a soldier. But there were female soldiers at Gettysburg. There were women like Mary Seasgull who disguised herself as a man so that she could fight alongside her husband. And there are other people whose stories and identities are less clear, people who were found to have female anatomy after being injured or killed in combat. There are at least five documented, including Seasgull two fought for the Union side, and three for the Confederacy, although it is possible that there were many more who went unnoticed and undocumented.
7: Next, we'll have somebody who will be familiar to people who have seen the Women's Memorial at Gettysburg, and that's Elizabeth Thorne. She was born in Germany as Elizabeth Catherine Masser, and then after immigrating to the United States, she married John Peter Thorne, who went by Peter. They had three sons before the Civil War started, and then Peter joined the army in August of 1862.
5: Peter was the caretaker of Evergreen Cemetery, and the family lived in the cemetery's art-shaped gatehouse, which still stands today. When Peter joined the army, Elizabeth took over for him as caretaker while also taking care of their children. And when the Battle of Gettysburg began, she was also about six months pregnant.
7: Yeah, six months pregnant and taking care of three little boys and acting as the caretaker of the cemetery. When the Confederate Army started to arrive in Gettysburg at the end of June, they requisitioned food from the Thorn household. And then when the Federal Army arrived a few days later, Elizabeth helped General Oliver Otis Howard get the lay of land. She sort of showed him which roads went where and what some of the local backways were that the Confederacy might not know about. She also provided dinner for some of the officers, although by that point, she really did not have much left. As thanks, though, some of Otis's men helped her move some of the family's valuables down into the cellar for safekeeping. And they also told her that if she were ordered to
5: leave the area, she should do so immediately. And that cemetery was part of Cemetery Hill, which became an active battlefield. On July 2nd, the family was ordered to evacuate, although Elizabeth came back during the night to check on things. And she found that the family's hogs had been killed and that the gatehouse was full of wounded soldiers. She left again to try to find food and shelter, and this time she stayed away until July 7th.
7: Once the family got back, they found that their home had just been ransacked, including what they had moved into the cellar. Amputations had been performed on their beds, so their feather beds and bedding were almost beyond repair. It took her and three women days of washing to fix them, and that was after they first repaired the pump, and some of what they had was really just beyond repair. There were also dead bodies awaiting burial outside, along with the bodies of horses that had been killed in the battle. But Elizabeth
5: Thorne is most well-known for what happened after all of that. She had run into the president of the cemetery on her way home, and he told her that there was more work waiting for her than she could possibly do. In her own account, in the days after the battle, she wrote, quote, I got a note from the president of the cemetery, and he said, Mrs. Thorne, it is made out that we will bury the soldiers in our cemetery for a while, so you go for that piece of ground and commence sticking off lots and graves as fast as you can make them. Well, you may know how I felt, my husband in the army, my father an aged man. Yet for all the foul air, we too started in. I stuck off the graves, and while my father finished one, I had another one started.
7: They did this in just terrible heat and filth and stench, because this was July, and some of these bodies had been decaying for days. Later on, she had some friends who helped, but both of them became very ill and had to leave A lot of people noted that the men who came to help her got too sick to continue on, and she was out there pregnant, carrying on with it. These burials went on for weeks. She buried 13 bodies on August 11th, which was more than a month after the battle. They were still burying the dead up until Gettysburg National Cemetery opened in October. It was formally dedicated in November, but at that point, a lot of bodies had already been buried or reburied there. Some of the bodies buried in Evergreen were ultimately moved to the National Cemetery.
5: In the end, Elizabeth buried 105 people with very little help. 91 of those were soldiers and 14 were civilians. She wasn't compensated for the additional labor or for the loss of her property or the cost of cleaning and repairing the gatehouse.
7: This was also a tiny, tiny fraction of the work that needed to be done. Gettysburg itself had a population of about 2,100 people, but about 11,000 people died as a result of the battle, about 7,000 died of their wounds immediately, and the rest followed in the days and weeks
5: afterward. Elizabeth's daughter, Rose Meade Thorne, was born the September after the battle, and her middle name was named after General George Meade, who had commanded the Army of the Potomac at Gettysburg. Peter Thorne returned from the war in 1865, and he and Elizabeth both died in 1907.
7: In 2002, the Gettysburg Women's Civil War Memorial was unveiled. It depicts Elizabeth Thorne, clearly exhausted and pregnant with a shovel. And although she is the woman who is depicted in this memorial, it is a memorial
5: to all the women. And now we are going to take a quick break and have a little word from one of the sponsors that keeps Stuff You Missed in History class going.
1: I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States.
6: Sit
5: there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world.
8: Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this hundred-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is
7: We talked just before the break about how the number of people killed in battle at Gettysburg was more than five times greater than Gettysburg's population of people living there. And the gap between the town's population and the number of wounded was even greater. Between 20,000 and 30,000 people were wounded. Most of them stayed in Gettysburg for at least some time after the battle. And our next subject is an example of how long this situation remained really critical. The active fighting at the Battle of Gettysburg took place between July 1st and 3rd. Euphemia Mary Goldsboro arrived around July 12th. By that point, there was still a lot of work to do.
5: Goldsboro was a nurse and one of many women from both sides of the war who went to Gettysburg during the battle's aftermath to try to care for the injured and dying soldiers. Goldsboro, who was known as Effie, was one of many Confederate supporters living in Baltimore, Maryland. She and other women there had been preparing for the fighting to come to them. So when Gettysburg ended in a Union victory and tremendous casualty numbers, they traveled from Baltimore to assist.
7: When they arrived in Gettysburg, conditions were just really dire. Nearly all of the doctors and the surgeons had left with their respective armies, so the very few who were left behind were so overwhelmed that they could really only focus on the most urgent needs.
5: Pennsylvania Hall at Gettysburg College was being used as a hospital for wounded from both sides, and that is where Goldsboro started working when she arrived. Here is how an unknown Confederate soldier described the conditions there. Quote, Unless it was a case of amputation needed immediately or the stopping of hemorrhage, they had not time to attend to anyone. Thus, for the first two weeks, there were no nurses, no medicines, no kinds of food proper for men in our condition. And for men who were reduced to mere skeletons from severe wounds and loss of blood, the floor was a hard bed with only a blanket on it. Eventually,
7: Goldsboro was assigned to Camp Letterman, which was a hospital camp set up near the battlefield, Goldsboro was in charge of a ward with 100 patients, 50 from each side. In the words of that same Confederate soldier, quote, "'Miss Goldsboro recognized the importance of showing no partiality, and many of both armies owed their lives to her good nursing, common sense, and justice, while she gladly forgot party spirit of the time and saw the necessity of sacrificing herself to the good of the Southern wounded, dying soldiers of the Confederate Army.'" She remained there nine weeks, working incessantly, forgetting the world and self, living only to comfort and support the suffering and dying.
5: One of the men that she tried to save was Lieutenant Colonel Waller Tazewell Patton of Virginia, who had been shot through the lung. And his condition had reached a point that he needed to be propped up to be able to breathe, but there was just nothing there available for him to be propped up on. And so Goldsboro offered herself, sitting on the floor and letting them secure him to her back. So they were basically back to back, and she was kind of forming a chair for him. And although she sat there overnight without moving, his condition was too grave, and he died on July 21st.
7: Although she cared for men without regard to what side they had been on, her work was not entirely above board. She knew that the surviving Confederate soldiers were going to be transferred to prisons once they were well enough, and she thought that they should have proper clothes and boots when they went. But it was against the rules to give them these things, probably because of the risk that they might try to escape if they had them. So she came up with an excuse to go into town, And she came back with clothes and boots secured up underneath her hoop skirt, hoping that they wouldn't bang together or fall out when she made her way past the Union guards. This worked.
5: (laughs) Goldsboro left Gettysburg after about nine weeks, shortly after the death of a Texas soldier named Samuel Watson, who she seems, based on her diary, to have really become quite attached to. She returned home, and at first, her family hardly knew her because she was so frail and exhausted. But eventually, she recovered, and she started smuggling again, this time to try to get things like mail, clothes, and supplies to imprisoned Confederate men. She was also a courier and a spy, and she used a lap desk with hidden compartments to smuggle dispatches. She was ultimately caught while trying to help a prisoner escape, and her, quote,
7: treasonable plans and letters and traitorous poetry were confiscated. She was sentenced to banishment for the duration of the war, By coincidence, she was sent to Virginia on the same boat as Belle Boyd, who previous hosts of the podcast have done an episode on. She apparently did not like Belle Boyd. I'm very curious about what the situation was
5: there, but I did not look into it. She referred to Boyd as, quote, that horrid woman. Aside from demonstrating how Gettysburg's aftermath stretched on after the battle, Goldsboro's story also illustrates how a lot of women put aside their political leanings to care for the sick, injured, and dying. Goldsboro, let's be clear, was a staunch supporter of the Confederacy, but at the battlefield's hospital, she gave compassionate care to anyone who needed it, no matter what side of the battle they had fought on.
7: Outside of the medical community, though, this definitely was not the case for all of Gettysburg's civilian population. A lot of them refused to harbor or assist Confederate sympathizers, including refusing to let sympathetic nurses board with them. And Goldsboro and other Confederate supporters were viewed with very understandable suspicion within their medical work as well. That same unknown soldier whose account we were reading from earlier reported that the reason her ward was half and half federal and Confederate troops was just to make sure she didn't do anything treasonous.
5: The next woman we are going to talk about is Margaret Divitt. You'll also see that spelled Devitt, or sometimes even with an A, as Davitt. And she was also known as Mag Palm. She was part of Gettysburg's Black community. There were people of African descent in Gettysburg for almost as long as there were Europeans. Some of the first Europeans to settle in the area brought enslaved Africans with them. Before that point, the area had been a hunting ground and a travel route for the Native peoples in the area. But what is now Gettysburg does not appear to have ever been home to a permanent Indigenous settlement. Of course, there is a whole history there that is outside of the scope of what we are talking about in this particular podcast.
7: Pennsylvania passed an Act for the Gradual Abolition of Slavery in 1780. So by the Civil War, Gettysburg's Black community was free and numbered close to 200 people, or not quite 10% of the population— Gettysburg had a school for Black children and an African Methodist Episcopal
5: church. Because of its proximity to the Mason-Dixon line, Gettysburg was home to a lot of underground railroad activity. About a third of its Black residents in 1860 had been liberated or had liberated themselves from Maryland or Virginia. But it was also an incredibly dangerous place to be as a Black person. Being so close to slave territory was a constant risk, especially in the light of fugitive slave laws that encouraged the capturing of people and taking them into slave territory, regardless of whether they had been previously enslaved or not.
7: So Margaret Palm, who had been born Margaret Divitt, or maybe Davitt, had direct experience with these dangers. She had been the target of an attempted capture herself, her employer's son, David Schick, described it this way, quote, on this occasion, she was attacked by a group of men who made the attempt to kidnap her and take her south, where they expected to sell her and derive quite a profit. She was a powerful woman, and they would have, from the sale, derived quite a profit. These men succeeded in tying Mag's hands. She was fighting them as best she could with her hands tied. She would attempt to slow them and succeeded in one instance in catching an attacker's thumb in her mouth and bit the thumb off.
5: Uh, When we did this as our live show, there was definitely some uh, cheers of support for Meg at this moment. Rightly so. In 1863, Palm was about 27 years old, and she had at least one child, and she was living with a man named Alf Palm. They were tenants on the land of Abraham Bryan, a free black man who had lived in the area for about 20 years. Although a census taker listed her occupation as Mistress Harlot it appears that she actually had a job working, cleaning, and doing laundry. It appears that this census taker listed that as her occupation because she and Alf were not married at the time.
7: Yeah, I have some words for that census taker. (laughs) As the Confederate Army approached Gettysburg, many of its Black residents fled. They knew that if they stayed, they were likely to be captured and enslaved. That had happened in lots of other towns that the... Army had moved through as they made their way into Union territory, but leaving was really also a risk. People would be leaving their jobs behind as well. They would have to go without income for an unknown amount of time until the danger had passed. They would also be leaving behind personal possessions, which were really likely to be taken, damaged, or destroyed.
5: So, Margaret was one of the people who stayed to act as a lookout and warn the Black community when they really could not wait any longer to go. And with her warning, many of Gettysburg's Black residents did successfully evacuate before the battle began. Some that could not or did not leave were sheltered by their white employers or other friends. But this did not always totally work out. Uh, There is at least one account of two Black women who were sheltered in a cellar But then when Confederate officers commandeered that home, those women were forced to come out and cook and care for them. At the same time, an unknown number of Gettysburg's Black residents were captured by the Confederates and marched out of town.
7: The house that Margaret and Alf were renting was largely destroyed in the battle. A lot of the fighting at Gettysburg was very urban, but she and her family survived. Her life after the war was a lot like it had been before. She continued to make a living by cleaning, doing laundry, and working as a porter. She and other Black women also retrieved uniforms from soldiers who had been wounded or killed. They cleaned these uniforms, repaired them, and sent them back to the Union Army to reuse.
5: Margaret Palm eventually saved up enough money to buy property of her own. And she also became known as an eccentric character around town, nicknamed Mag Palm at this point. And there were embellished stories recounting her daring do before and during the battle and her adventures afterward. Often, these were reported in newspapers. But in those accounts, her speech was rendered as the sort of imagined dialect of enslaved people living on plantations in the South, which is not how she spoke.
7: Right, it was very similar to our previous episode about the Ain't I a Woman speech and how it was just sort of a made-up, imagined way of, of talking. We don't entirely know how she felt about becoming this kind of local celebrity, but she definitely did not appreciate how other people kind of took her story over for themselves and turned her into a caricature. She took care to tell her friends and her family about what she had done in her own words. She also had a picture of herself taken later on, posed to show the way that her assailants had tried to bind her hands. Decades later, her great-great-granddaughter, Catherine Carter, related these family stories to another woman named Margaret. That was Margaret S. Crichton, author of The Colors of Courage, Gettysburg's Forgotten History. They especially talked about her fighting back against those attempted
5: captors. Almost 30 years after Palm's 1896 death, Elsie Singmaster published A Boy at Gettysburg, which used Palm as the inspiration for the character Maggie Bluecoat. And that fictional character was a conductor on the Underground Railroad and wore an officer's jacket from the War of 1812, thus, her Bluecoat nickname. It is possible that the real Margaret was involved with the Underground Railroad and with Gettysburg's Slave Refuge Society, which was founded by the African Methodist Episcopal Church. But in some accounts, her real story has been really conflated and confused with this fictional character. If she was involved with the Underground Railroad, she probably would have been a lot more secretive about it than the fictional character of Maggie Bluecoat.
7: We should also note that Gettysburg was permanently altered for its Black community after the battle was over— A lot of the people who fled never returned. Most of the ones who did come back were people who had property to come back to. A lot of that property had been seriously damaged or destroyed in the fighting. In the fall of 1863, there were only 64 Black residents listed on the city's tax roll, which was a much smaller number than before the battle. Although the abolition of slavery made Gettysburg a much less dangerous place to live from that perspective, it really became more of a stopping point than a destination as freed people moved north after
5: the war. And we are going to pause once again for a little sponsor break, but well, we take a break and then we will come right back with more of Gettysburg's Women.
8: My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the Story of BitCon. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C.,
4: old school legends modern power players redemption seekers and ex-lovers are all competing in cape town south africa for the prize of three hundred thousand dollars anyone can win relationships matter and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion listen to mtv's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
3: every family has skeletons in their closet mine certainly does. Ones that go back a 100 years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums
7: Matilda Pierce, known as Tilly, was an ordinary but pretty well-off civilian from Gettysburg. She was 15 in July of 1863 when the battle happened. In 1885, she published Gettysburg, or What a Girl Saw and Heard of the Battle, which was her first-person account.
5: Tilly was the youngest of four children, and she was at school at the Young Ladies Seminary at the Gettysburg Female Institute on June 26th when they first heard that the Confederate Army was approaching. Their teacher told them all to run home as fast as they could, although she was sure that some of them couldn't have made it before the troops arrived.
7: Her book gives a day-by-day accounting of the battle. At first, her tone's pretty excited. She uh, talks about the insults and indignities of the Confederate army taking her horse. She also talks about their appearance and behavior, which she finds to be pretty raggedy and rude. But apart from that, she sounds pretty upbeat, but when the actual fighting begins, things quickly become frightening.
5: She describes a neighbor passing by on the way to Jacob Weikert's farm south of town and asking for Tilly to come along, thinking that she was going to be safer there. And at first, this seemed like a perfectly good plan, but as the battle shifted, it turned out to not be true at all. The farm was not far from Little Roundtop, and that was the site of active fighting, She describes the house and barn becoming a field hospital for Union soldiers and treating at least 100 men. In Tilly's words, quote, "...the
7: number of wounded brought to the place was indeed appalling. They were laid in different parts of the house. The orchard and space around the buildings were covered with the shattered and dying, and the barn became more and more crowded." The scene had become terrible beyond description.
5: This becomes one of those really unique insights into what the mindset of someone is like going through trauma. Uh, Tracy mentioned just a little bit ago that her accounts before things really started getting heated were almost kind of excited. And then in the early part of the fighting, Tilly was terrified and describes herself as weeping in fear. But by the third day, she writes, quote, "'Amputating benches had been placed about the house. I must have become inured to seeing the terrors of battle, else I could hardly have gazed upon the scenes now presented.'" Her account also
7: mentions the death of Mary Virginia Wade, known as Jenny, who's the only civilian known to have been killed directly in the fighting. There were other civilians who died as a result of the battle as well, including at least one who gave birth and wasn't able to get the necessary medical attention. Jenny was at the home of her sister, Georgia McClellan, who had also given birth just hours before the battle started. The McClellan home was directly in the line of fire between the two armies. Jenny was kneading dough to make bread for the Union soldiers, and she was struck by a stray bullet and killed on the morning of July
5: 3rd. Tilly also writes about the conditions after the battle as she was returning home. Quote, As it was impossible to travel the roads on account of the mud, we took to the fields. While passing along, the stench arising from the fields of carnage was most sickening. Dead horses, swollen to almost twice their natural size, lay in all directions. Stains of blood frequently met our gaze, and all kinds of army accoutrements covered the ground. Fences had disappeared. Some buildings were gone, others ruined. The whole landscape had been changed, and I felt as though we were in a strange and blighted land. Our killed and wounded had by this time been nearly all carried from the field. With such surroundings, I made my journey homeward after the battle. Once the battle
7: was over, Tilly helped care for the wounded, including several Union soldiers who were cared for in her own family home. And her book concludes with her adult self looking back on what had happened when she was a teenager and Gettysburg's recovery decades later, Her tone is pretty optimistic. Quote, years have come and gone since the happening of the events narrated in the preceding chapters, but they are as indelibly stamped upon my memory as when passing before me in actual reality. The carnage and desolation, the joys and sorrows therein depicted have all long since passed away. Instead of the clashing tumult of battle, the groans of the wounded and dying, the mangled corpses, the shattered cannon, the lifeless charger, and the confusion of armies and accoutrement, a new era of joy and prosperity, Harmony and Unity Prevails.
5: After the war, Tilly grew up, married, had children, and lived her life before dying on March 15, 1914. Hers is one of a lot of eyewitness accounts of Gettysburg, including letters, journals, and published books. But it is also a unique perspective because it is from a civilian who was a 15-year-old girl at the time of the battle. And that brings us to our last women to talk about today— Tilly Pierce was an ordinary girl whose name we remember today because she published her experiences in a book, but so many other women and girls had very similar experiences in 1863, but theirs were unrecorded and consequently unremembered. So you've probably heard the
7: phrase, well-behaved women seldom make history. Most of the time, people interpret this as kind of a rallying cry, celebrating the so-called ill-behaved women who broke new ground and made strides in a way that changed the world in defiance of how... Society thought they should act. A lot of times it's kind of a make some noise and go make history, but that quote didn't come from Eleanor Roosevelt or Marilyn Monroe or any of the other historically famous women that it's generally attributed to. It was first published in a 1976 paper in American Quarterly by Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. At the time, she was studying at the University of New Hampshire.
5: And her intent was very different from the way that people usually use that quote today. It was more about all the ordinary women who lived and worked and made a difference in their world but are not included in history books because their lives were quiet and pious. The full sentence from that paper is, quote, well-behaved women seldom make history. Against antinomians and witches, these pious matrons have had little chance at all. Ulrich eventually wrote a book exploring how this quote has spread and evolved and what it means for a woman to actually make history.
7: So Gettysburg was just full of pious matrons and other dutiful women and girls. Most of the men who were able to fight were away fighting, so the people left behind were mostly women, children, elders, and people with illnesses or disabilities. So ordinary women who lived in Gettysburg were the ones cooking for soldiers and tending the wounded and otherwise being part of the battle, but not necessarily with the excitement or flair or personality that would make them memorable to history.
5: Those who couldn't or didn't leave ahead of the fighting found themselves in the middle of an active battlefield. And this was, of course, terrifying, with many women's journals and letters describing hearing soldiers in their houses above them while they hid in their cellars and not knowing if those soldiers were friends or enemies. They went through all kinds of hardships, going without food after the armies requisitioned everything they had or having their homes used as sniper posts, which drew enemy fire.
7: They also endured the battle's horrifying aftermath with the unburied bodies of people and animals creating a stench so strong that they had to go around with handkerchiefs that were soaked in peppermint or pennyroyal, holding those over their noses and mouths. This lasted for months, pretty much until the weather got cold in the late fall and winter.
5: They turned homes and barns and outbuildings into temporary hospitals and helped care for the wounded. They cleaned and repaired and dug graves in sweltering heat and torrential rainstorms and often without enough food or clean beds to sleep in. The railroads and telegraphs were destroyed, so they did all of this without really being able to communicate with the rest of the world. And they also gave shelter to people who traveled to Gettysburg looking for friends and family members, who then became part of the recovery effort as well. And we also cannot forget the women who had made Gettysburg their home, but then had to make the choice between leaving it behind or risking being enslaved. So we named this episode
7: Fearless, Feisty, and Unflagging, the Women of Gettysburg. But a whole lot of women who were part of the Battle of Gettysburg's history weren't necessarily any of those things. There were so many ordinary women who were scared and exhausted or were just doing their best in an unimaginably horrifying situation. But their lives and their contributions still have value, and they should not be forgotten. And before we move on to some listener mail... Since this was a live show, we just want to thank all the people involved with it. So, thanks so much to the Gettysburg Foundation and especially events coordinator Bethany Yingling for all of their help leading up to and during the show and for inviting us in the first place. Thanks also to Chris Gwynn from the Gettysburg National Military Park for leading us on a tour of the battlefield while they, we were there. That was great. And thank you so much to everyone who came out and bore with us through the weather. We were getting ready. We were sort of doing our um, final go over of all of our notes, uh, having some water, getting ready to go out there. And Holly walked into the kitchen. They had they had put us up in a cottage that's right there um, at the at the venue. Holly walked into the kitchen and kind of went, "Whoa!" It's like, whoa, what?" <laughs> Holly said, "It's dark outside." And uh, it turned out there was a severe thunderstorm warning, including the potential for a half dollar sized hail. So, uh, thanks to everybody who didn't just immediately
5: go home and stay away. Yeah, I peeked out the window and could see people running from the tent. <laughs> and I was, uh, they had just postponed things. They handled the whole thing so beautifully and just kind of, uh, had a, a delay for a bit. We started about 20 minutes late after things had passed over. Thankfully, it was quick. Uh, but yeah, everyone stuck it out. And I was so, so thankful for all of the listeners that came out, and said hello, uh, That was a really spectacular event. I had a fantastic time. Me too.
7: Uh, And now I have listener mail. This is from Ursula. And Ursula says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I listened to your Winnipeg strike episode and loved it. I am from Winnipeg, and I never knew just how big the strike was till this year when the city started installing historic exhibits throughout downtown. The Manitoba Museum has an early 1900s recreated town inside the museum. It's a fairly large gallery complete with homes, businesses, and even a movie theater that you can enter. Some buildings are even two stories. It was my favorite part of the museum as a child, and at 22, it still is. The museum recently gave a massive 1919 strike update to the town, though I must say that my experience with the exhibit was made so much better by a small group of relatives of strikers who were also there that day. They were passing on the personal experiences of their relatives. Walking through was really walking through a giant memory lane. It wasn't an event put on the museum. I just lucked out that day. It was a really special and sweet. Thank you for all the effort, fun, and passion you put into the show. I love it dearly, Ursula. Thank you so much for this email, Ursula. uh, We have gotten several notes from folks about that that episode that folks seem to have really enjoyed. So uh, I'm glad I stuck with it even though i felt like we were having a little heavy dose of 1919 earlier this uh this year (laughs) if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast we're at history podcast at howstuffworks.com and then we're all over social media at mist in history that's where you'll find our facebook pinterest instagram and twitter you can come to our website at mistinhistory.com find show notes for all the episodes that holly and i have ever done together and a searchable archive of everything ever And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and anywhere else you get podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind.